Hello everyone, welcome to Giants, presented by Dobie Real Estate. I'm the host, Simon Thomas, and with me is John Leonis. Our guest today is Susie Siegel. Susie is a current president, CEO, and chief champion of Walsh College here in Troy, Michigan. Susie is a licensed attorney and member of the State Bar of Michigan, as well as a publisher, published author, which is very exciting and we're going to get into today. So thank you for coming, Susie. Um, we really appreciate your time today um, and welcome. Thank you so much, Simon. John, I'm excited. This is great. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. We typically kick off our conversation with a quote, maybe a famous quote, and this is a classic from Sidney J. Harris. They said, the whole purpose of education is to turn mirrors into windows. And when I read that, I had no idea what it meant. Maybe you could help us interpret what that means. Oh my gosh, I love this. It's so great. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so when I hear that, the first thing I think of is the windows, meaning like you can look outward. So many times in life, we can get stuck looking inward, turning inward, worrying about our worth, worrying about are we good enough, are we smart enough, what am I meant to do in the world? And one of the things I love about education is you have the opportunity to really see what is inside the talents and gifts you have that you can then make contribution to in the world. So there's the mirror and there's the window. You're able to look inside, you're able to see what is your through line, what is your superpower, what are the things that you were given that you can make an incredible difference in the world. And then through education, you're able to bring those talents and skill sets and shine a light in the window to all. You know, I think about, that's awesome. I think about when you're responding to this, I, I was just watching a, uh, a podcast on, and, and Tom Brady was in it. And they asked him like- U of M grad. U of M grad. They asked him like, did you envision winning, you know, as many Super Bowls as you did and being the GOAT? And he goes, no, I, I never thought about any of that. He's like, I, and it's kind of cheesy because you growing up, you're like, be the best you can be, right? He's like, all I ever thought about was being the best I could be. I never looked at anybody else and thought I wanted to be them. Why do they? Why are they faster than me? Why are they stronger than me? Why? It was I just always thought about being the best I can be, hands down. Period. And you, you, when he was saying it, you were like, yeah, he didn't. You could tell that's all he thought about, right? Yeah. And that you responding to that quote made, made me think of that with incredible clarity. And uh, I mean which made me understand it because I, when I read it, I did not. Well, this is the first idea. time I've seen that quote, I'll be very frank, but when I heard that, I mean, you just, I know in my heart and soul the power of education. Nelson Mandela said that education is the most powerful weapon you have in the world to affect change. And when you said that about Tom Brady, I think it was Tom Brady or someone from the Patriots that talked about keeping your own scorecard. So important in life, because Ed Millette, who I love when you said go, because I immediately thought of Ed Millette, you know, he talks about how many times when we compare ourselves to others, that's when we have disappointment. So he only uses the comparison when he wants to create the urgency for change. So I think about keep your own scorecard, worry about where you are, where is your goals, where's the gap to get there, and focus on that, rather than looking around and saying, oh, what does this person have, or why don't I have this, or why, you know, if I looked at my career, it would have been so easy for me, and you can imagine this as a woman, right, a Lebanese woman, to say, oh wow, look what everybody else got, look what this man got, look, I never did that. I kept my own scorecard, I said, this is what I'm gonna do, this is how I'm gonna hold myself up to my standards and goals, this is who I want to be in the process, and that's leadership from the inside out. Did you, did that come natural to you? Or is that something yeah. you had to work out? Okay, both. I would say a little bit of me always knew that there was some part of us inside that has grit that could, I, I remember I wrote this poem in, like, I think it was high school, uh, Deny Reality, in the sense of people are going to tell you things about yourself and your capabilities. Those don't have to define you. However, years later, when I got into the locus of control research, and I know we'll talk a little bit about locus mindset and the, and the books that I've written, that's really when it gelled, when you realize that you have ultimate power and control over your life and that we are the product of our decisions, not our circumstances. And the world will sell you a bad bill of goods. They will tell you, just do you. People need to appreciate what you have or take your stuff and go home. We see those things on Instagram all the time. And I would tell you in my work, in my own life, I can at least share for me, I don't think those are very useful tips. I think that you own a lot of your own decisions and actions and choices. Certainly things occur, like this morning we talked about, oh, we had you know, a little glitch and get me getting here in the time, but you are able to adjust your sales so you can be successful. So success is an inside job. I agree. Well, I know that you've had a very successful 
career that, that, that touches in a lot of different points, but if you ever wanted to be a realtor, I think you could you have some success <laughs> in that it, as right? well. Yes. So just in case. Yes. I love that, though. I love seeing how you, know, you help people because you're really helping folks find homes, whether it's for themselves or investment properties, and they have to see themselves in there, and you're really bringing that to life for them. And I've seen people walk in the door of a, of a house before and just like, oh, my gosh, I'm home. So I think that's amazing what you all do. Yeah, and the good realtors go back to education, they educate themselves and you can tell the difference. A lot of people get, it's very yes. easy to become a realtor, right? 40 hours, you become a realtor and then they get in here and they're like, I'm gonna start selling homes, right? And they do, they'll sell a couple, but then the ones that really dive in and master their craft and educate and know the market and learn, 100%. I mean, they take it, they take it to a whole nother level and it's their choice. It's not something like Well, and, and it's the relationships you build. Because how many realtors do you all know, not at you here, but at other realtors that will just make the deal? But then the relationship is burned. People leave oh, and go, wow, wow you know, wow. and they walk away. You know what? We have gone back to our same realtor three times because of that relationship that was built and because of the quality of service and that trust. So in life, connections are currency. Your network is your net worth. So the more you build those relationships, the more you'll have that repeat business. Because then after a while, you know, then you just scale, right? You don't have to go out and get new leads because people are either moving or they're referring somebody or they're buying a home for somebody else. And you're able to just work off that relationship and that credibility. Connections are currency, that's, that's brilliant. Absolutely. And, and so we've done, you're our fourth guest on this show. Um, We've had all different types of, of guests, but I will say your, your bio was very impressive. It talks a lot about, there's a lot of education in here. You know, I see publisher, I see CEO, I see, you know, um, you know, Walsh College, all these things that like, you know, are other guests who are very successful people. We never really talked about, we talked about learning their business and mastering her, but we didn't really go into education and what they did. So I'm excited to talk about, yes. you know, th this side of it, right? Cause it's, to me, it's, it's even, it's something, you know, I wasn't, I was not a, into school. I went later in life, I really became uh, into reading. Cause I realized like every time I read something, I get better, right? And I became obsessed with it. But growing up, I was not, like this. I went to college. I did those things because I felt like I had to, not because I wanted to. So let's get into that a little bit. Yes. Um, let's talk about Walsh College. Yeah, talk, my favorite tell, tell us the history of Walsh College. Oh, well, I just so happen to have this golden book. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and if it's shiny, it's because it's in like little wrapping I brought. But so Walsh College is an incredible uh, institution. And we were founded in 1922 by Mervyn Walsh, who was the accountant for the Thomas Edison Light Company. So Mervyn Walsh worked with Thomas Edison, and I just think that's such a beautiful story. By the way, Thomas Edison also founded the Motion Picture Company. And the reason why that's so significant to us today is Paul Glantz, who is the co-founder and chairman of Imagine Entertainment, is a Walsh alum. He graduated with a master's of tax, and he and his professional team are located on the second floor of our campus. They've moved in there and our corporate, their corporate headquarters are up there. So I just think sometimes in life, the universe, right, delivers in such quantum ways. But our history has really been filling the needs and working with working adults, working professionals that are busy, they're balancing life, they're balancing careers, and we do business and technology education. And then it began as an accounting school training folks in the PACE accounting method. Well, when the state of Michigan changed their requirements and said, okay, you now need a four-year degree in order to sit for the CPA exam, Mervyn Walsh said, okay, how do we make our college complementary to community colleges so we don't do the first two years? We take students after those two years into the junior and senior year and then into graduate programs, we hope with us, and a lot of them do continue on. So our partners are the community college. And the very first woman CPA in Michigan was educated at Walsh. Really? Grace Drimmer, we're very proud of that. So this book, I just love this, I carry a copy with me all the time, is the history of Walsh from 1922 to 1997. And it just has some incredible history in the city of Detroit. We actually started at the Detroit Opera House, the building that is today the Detroit Opera House on the sixth floor. And in that room, the very first class had six women in it. So Walsh has had this incredible history, not only in the city of Detroit and now Troy, Michigan, but of lighting up the world with 
you know, helping Thomas Edison advance his company. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. So I am so proud to sit in this leadership seat for whatever time I'm in it and to steward this legacy into our next, we just celebrated 100 years, into our next 100 years. Wow. And I love John's face. He's like, oh, wow, this is great, right? You can't like pay for this type of response. Simon often makes fun of me for how expressive I am. I'll yes. walk into a home and I'll be like, wow, this is great. <laughs> Everyone should buy this. Yes. Well, you're good at that profession, right? Well, that is incredible, though, and I did not know that. I had no idea, and I don't. I would imagine that most of our audience and people that are watching this podcast would be um, surprised. Yeah, that yeah. Well. It's a, history is a beautiful thing, and we're telling the story a lot more now. I think you know maybe a lot of folks knew about Walsh. I grew up about a mile and a half away, so you know I grew up in Troy, Michigan. I used to jog by Walsh. In high, back in high school, and I remember I worked my way through college. Remember service merchandise? How many people remember service merchandise? Sure. Thank you so much. A little bit of love there. <laughs> and service merchandise was the store where you couldn't really buy anything off the shelves. You got a ticket, you would go to package pickup. Anyway, I share that because a lot of the folks I worked with were going to college at night at Walsh to better their lives. And I had such respect for the institution as a beacon of business education for working professionals. And so it was a true privilege to almost return home, in a sense, about a mile and a half away, right? from Walsh College was where I grew up, and to lead Walsh College into the next 100 years. Go further into your journey from growing up in Troy to your career path and, and where it's led you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, growing up in Troy, and then I was there for 18 years, and then went to college at University of Michigan and lived in Ann Arbor for about 27. That sounds crazy to do. I know people are probably doing the math and figuring out how old it is. And then, you know, all through that time, I had a love of learning and of education. And, and like you, Simon, I wasn't necessarily in love with school. I wasn't necessarily your straight A student, per se, but I knew something transformed in me when I learned. And only years later, with several neuroscience certifications, have I learned what actually happens in the brain when we learn, when we grow, when we change. And I saw education as the pathway forward. And so obviously, you know, I grew up in a home, we worked very hard. Um, we certainly didn't have a lot. I remember in college, I, I tell the story, I had like $35 in my checking account. I couldn't even check out at Kroger for groceries. I had to go borrow money from someone in my dorm. And I remember thinking, I don't want this to ever happen again. And I saw education as the pathway forward. And I've seen it break cycles of poverty, break cycles of self-defeating behaviors, you know, all those things. And I really truly believe that if we can educate and empower the world, we can create better citizens, better humans, better societies, better families, and better businesses. And I love how Walsh serves the business and technology community because we believe that there's so much incredible work that happens when we can serve them. So through getting different degrees and then having the opportunity to serve at Concordia where I was before coming to Walsh and then I was recruited at Walsh. And I always, you know, my dissertation focused on entrepreneurial and innovative operating models of higher ed. And I always thought if I was going to build an entrepreneurial college because I have this entrepreneurial like you know in my in my sense or whatever my entrepreneurial DNA um, I thought it would look a lot like Walsh it would have business it would have technology it would be for real working adults it would have applied focus it would have practitioner professors are very proud of our faculty our faculty not only are credentialed in their field but they also have professional experience so you're actually learning from folks that have done the work they're teaching you how to do that's I mean that's that's pretty amazing so so the CEO what does that entail? What are you doing every day? What's your day-to-day -day like? Because you're CEO. That, that, you know, we and you talked about this. Uh, you know, we were, you were talking about somebody that mentioned how all CEOs are all owners. Sitting, are, sitting with a cigar with their feet up. You yeah. Know? Like, like that's what somebody's impression of yeah. what a CEO was. And I, you know, explained, well, that's not really it. And it shouldn't be that. You know, leadership looks totally different, especially today. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, yeah, day to day, like, what, okay. what, are you, what are you doing? Well, let's first even talk about the title. As you probably have seen, I, I'm intentional about, you know, I've been omitting that at times. So I'll, okay, I'll share this. This is kind of vulnerable. So, everybody's like, oh, wait. <laughs> so, in Ann Arbor, I always laughed in Ann Arbor because it's such a highly educated area, and, and that's a great area, and it's really diverse and it's highly educated. I would joke that people wouldn't take a meeting with me unless I had two or three grad degrees, right? And I have three, and I don't share that to impress anybody, but to impress upon you, that's literally how I felt at times. Then I I come back toward Walsh, right? And folks could care less about the initials and they're more like, well, what is your title, right? So I think a lot of times we can get stuck in the trappings of the title. There is no question at the end of the day, I am responsible for everything that happens at the institution. And that is a weighty and heavy responsibility. You know, we have over 200 employees and I'm responsible to make sure that we have a strong financial and strong missional ship for the future. We have our students and alumni, about 30,000 of those, and it's very important to me that they feel the legacy of Walsh is, is there for them. 
So when you say, what is my role? My role really is two things. One is to set the vision and to make sure that we are living and executing the mission in all of our areas and to make sure we have a strong leadership team that I'm nurturing and coaching and supporting 100%. Because in many organizations, I will admit, I tend to be a little more in the day-to-day perhaps than others because I just know it so well, I love it, and I think that's important that at any point, if, if needed, I could jump in and call new students and prospects, and I have, or I could pick up the phone and connect with donors, and I have. I think that's an important for credibility and authority to lead. You know, I've done every role in higher ed. I've advised, I've done admissions, I've taught. Uh, been full-time faculty. I've, I've advanced in rank three times through the peer review process when I was at Concordia and then I came into Walsh. So there's a credibility that comes with having to live it. When you ask about the day-to-day, I plan my days because you know you control your life by controlling your time. I just put a message out there to our community on that. So a lot of it is making sure what are our priorities, what are the things we're not doing, what are our KPIs, our board is very focused on those, and where is it that we need to go for the future? Because as you're seeing with higher education, it is changing rapidly. And if I'm just preparing for today, if I'm just like, well, what's going on today? I'm not doing my job. I've got to be prepared for the future, and I've got to make sure I'm setting this institution up for its very best interests. And that has nothing to do with me and my role. That has everything to do with making sure that we are living and breathing the mission and vision of Walsh. And that's why I say Chief Chan. Champion, that's my job is to come to all of you and talk about this and talk about this incredible institution and how it's changing the world today and it will into the future. So, Susie, listening to you talk, I can understand why you're a badass because <laughs> you are super. Can we super, say that on the podcast? Is that going to get edited yeah. out? Yeah, because you're passionate about it. You can obviously tell you're, you're you know, the enthusiasm yeah, is it, certainly it's present. Amazing, right? like, mm-hmm. Listening to you talk, I'm, I'm excited, right? And it's, but you can roll with us, you know, I a grad it. program. You know, that's yeah, how, that's how you know, growing Dolby. That's how that's how I built Dolby. It was an idea in our head, and it was just being excited and passionate, and, yeah. and it was, and it's evolved into a lot of different things, but. Um, when I when we got into starting Dolby, you know, and then it branched off into other businesses, managing people, managing um, you know leadership. We hear the word leadership. Um, it, what you know, I'm a. I went from a one man show to a two man show to now a, a 25 man show, and you want to do everything because you know how you feel like it, it was hard to delegate, right? And I see a lot of people who work the same 40, 50, 60 hours a week and they have totally different results, right? Um, talk a little bit about that. Was it hard coming? Because I don't believe leadership and management, you can le- learn in a book. Now, maybe I'm wrong. It's experience. It's, it's you know, a lot of hard days of, of how do you, you know, I could be saying something one way and you don't even know what I'm saying and I can't, I'm frustrated with you because you don't know what I'm saying and it's like clear to me and not clear to you. So. How, how has that been, you know, when, when going into this position and doing what you've done? Yeah. Leadership development is personal development. It is a journey to the inside of yourself and back out again. And I had to change who I was and how I show up, and I'm continually improving that. I had to become the type of person that could sit in this seat and lead. And that is always my coaching and mentoring to my team, is how can we change, how can we take accountability for the things in our lives, for the communications, right? Um, so I think a lot of it is the personal growth and development that I went through in my life, you know, for my own reasons, for my own learnings, for realizing, wow, I had these behaviors that weren't suiting me. And that's something a lot of people don't understand about neuroscience and neuroscience of behavior and cognitive development. We are more than our behaviors. We are more than our emotions. We're more than the associations we make. And about 95% of how we move through the world is driven by the autonomic subconscious mind. When we understand that, we can decide what's working for us and what's not. So that's why I think leader, I I would agree with you. I don't think you can, I think you can learn leadership from a book, but I don't think that you can truly own it from the inside out until you get in and work with the most powerful part of your brain. So we have a program at Walsh called Walsh Leadership Academy, WLA, and each module is intended to really help each leader transform personally and professionally so that by the end of it, there's transformational change because a lot of leadership trainings and developments don't work. I know, I tried them. And the ones that worked for me were the ones that really went to the inside of who I was and helped me shift so I could show up better for others. We always think it's other people. 
the blame finger goes out, oh, right? Wow. And we say, oh, if that person would just be different, or oh, that's nice, how hypocritical are they, or what? We're always pointing around the world. That's called an external locus of control. Dr. Julian Rotter talks about that. That's the source of a lot of the research that I've done. And it's unfortunate because people will move through their lives this way, and they will always have a reason for why they're miserable, why they don't get ahead, and why other people are responsible for their outcomes. Imagine if there was a different way. Imagine if we could take ownership of our responses, if we could say, well, how did I show up this morning, John? How did I show up this morning, Simon? Did I show up in a way that made you all feel like, wow, we really want to have her on this podcast? Or was it, oh, brother, how long is this going to last, right? I control that. It had nothing to do with what happened earlier this morning or not. I control the energy I bring in the room. So that's leadership. When we talk about leadership energy, is the energy that you're bringing into the room. And I have to look at myself many times. And if I see in the organization, let's say we're having a, a stressful week or there's some you know, issues with the culture, I have to say, okay, how, what am I doing? Where am I that first domino that is setting that off into the universe? And how can I shift so we get a better result? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's, and, and, and not going back to you can't learn it in school, but what, what I find is, People say it's business, it's not personal. It's, you know, you can't be emotional. And I agree with that. I mean, you have to make decisions. And as you get as you get further along within your business and in a leadership role, you do learn how to turn it off and turn it on. But but when you do go home at night, there are times where your decisions, you, you reflect on them and you're like, man, I really, I really just, I really, uh, that, that it, you know, I had to make that decision, but that person's life is completely changed now. And, and it will be for the better. You truly believe that. But in the, in the beginning, it, you really think you hurt somebody or, you know, um, you know, you see it all the time. But taking ownership, we see it a lot with agents. They jump from brokerage to brokerage because it's like, oh, it's the broker's fault, not, not my fault. It's like, no, guys, you got to, you, there's things you got to do every morning. You're 100% commission. Nobody pays you. You pay the brokerage, right? Like you need to wake up and have a purpose and have goals and do your checklist and time block and manage your time and, and move towards the goal. But if you're not disciplined enough to do that, right. it's nobody else's fault. I mean, so I want to lose 100 pounds, but I can't blame it on lifetime, right? I say right, that all the right, time. Yeah. So um, it's, yes. it's, I, that's how I think of it. Yeah, and I think too, high when you really talk to people that are perfor high performers, that are self-earned, self-made high performers, they don't stay in the breakdown. They don't stay in the blame. They don't give any energy to it. Problems need energy to, to grow and to survive and, and to spread. Um, and we don't, we don't, like, so if I'm, if I'm stuck in the breakdown, if I'm going, oh, why didn't this happen? And I remember this. Like, I, can, I have a lot of grace for folks because I was one of those folks. Like, early on in my career, it was, well, I don't feel I'm getting enough opportunity or I don't feel they're respecting me or why is this happening? What if I looked inside and said, how am I showing up? Am I adding value? How am I speaking about myself in the organization? right? The words we use shape the, the building. They're the building blocks of our reality. They shape our world. So taking that ownership of how we show up and how we lead, it doesn't mean other people are always going to do things that we like. It doesn't mean that their reactions are useful or not. It just, it's irrelevant to my success. I'm not going to let somebody else's emotional breakdown, reaction, or treatment of me impact my success. I'm going to find a way to be successful and I'm going to find a way, how I show up, and Michelle Obama would say it, when they go low, you go high. How I show up in the world is not dependent, John, on how you treat me. It's how I choose to be. And if you treat me a certain way, I don't have to go right back and do the same. I can decide to treat better, right? So we have incredible control over that. And that's the one thing I wish you know somebody had said early on in my career is, you have more control over the outcomes in your life and the people that you attract than you think. And if you can make that shift, you will see better results. So the second we go to blame, that's low-level leadership. The second we go to criticize, we go to the, you know, I, I call it the toxic pot stirring that people do in organizations, right? Oh, I'm just saying this. No, you're stirring the pot, right? That's a behavioral thing. That's, if you study the neuroscience, that was learned somewhere in life as a survival mechanism. High performers, they don't do that. You talk a lot about... Um how we use our time, the mindset, you've accomplished a lot. When did you have time to write a book? Yes. 
I laugh because I don't even bring my books. I'm so, like you said, I'm so on fire and passionate about Walsh. And I did not write this. Okay, so I have three books. One of them is a journal that accompanies one of the books. But the research I did around locus of control resulted in a few studies that I did to measure if we could move somebody's internal locus, which is taking ownership of your life, and we could strengthen it. Because I don't believe that anything is fixed. I believe we have, we're very neuroplastic. Our brains are very neuroplastic. Even though it feels like change is difficult, it's because we resist, because we don't know who we would be if we shifted, right? And so I wrote a book called Locus, Take Control and Change the Direction of Your Life. And we talk about the compass and the magnet. I don't have it with me, but you know a magnet, if you put it near a compass, what happens? It points to the magnet. Right. It, well, it disrupts the compass. It takes you off course. So your compass are your conscious brain goals, the things you set. I want to lose 100 pounds. I want to make more money. I want to have a healthy, fulfilling relationship, right? And if there's pieces in the magnet mind, if there's belief systems or behaviors that don't align with that, then what's gonna happen is every time it's gonna pull you away from your goal. So instead of doing the work with the conscious brain, which is like the New Year's resolutions, the willpower, the logic, we get in and we work with the subconscious brain, the autonomic part of the mind, that's the neuroscience piece. And that drives change. So the Locus book accompanies the Thrive Journal, and the Thrive Journal is a scientific framework, six elements that propel the subconscious mind. Timing, handwriting, repetition, imagination, visualization, and emotion. It's a very scripted framework. We did a focus group of 17 people for three weeks, and we saw a statistically significant change in their internal locus of control, as measured by another party, Patricia Duttweiler's um, internal locus inventory. So why am I sharing all that? Because we saw we were able to take leaders and we were able to take professionals that had a more external locus and shift it to a more internal. So I talk about in locus, it's basically the book I wish somebody had given me. I said, look, this is what's gonna happen in your life. This is why these things are gonna go off the rails. And I want you to know why, how you can get about to make change. Then the other book, the third book, is Chief Energy Officer, and that's specifically for folks that want to be leaders. Now, you don't have to be in the C-suite to be a leader, and you can even be a leader and not supervise anybody. It's your self-leadership. But it talks about the science behind why energy is so important from the standpoint of physics, neuroscience, and then we even get into a little bit of quantum energy, quantum physics. Would someone have to have a background in some type of science in order to no. start that book? That's the beautiful part. Okay. I wrote the, in fact, if you know me, I can write emails longer than the books. They're like 150, 170 pages. If you go on Amazon, if you look at Susie Siegel, Locus, Chief Energy Officer, they're there. They're easy to read. 100% of the book proceeds go to Walsh College. Wow. So 100% of, well, I mean, it's Amazon, so they take a nice little right. cut too. But it all goes to Walsh, and that's very important to me because I want to be able to support this college. It's like my heart. So, But anyway, so yeah, you wouldn't need a science background. I try to explain. I, I give you the science and the references and the research because I think that's important as an academic and as a researcher to say, here's where you can go to validate this, yet it's distilled for folks to read it and get change and apply it right away. Because if you can't apply the tools and see change, what good are they? Does the book uh, does the book give you the ability, to, like almost like a like a like a, a workshop? Like, are you able to? Like, I see a lot of people read these books and uh, they get super pumped up for about three days, yeah. and then they're off. Yeah. Like, is there is there a community? Is there a Facebook? Is there a, like a social platform that is? revolves around this? Yeah, so, so two things. One is, that's my hope, is that when you read the book, when you work through the exercises, when you do the Thrive Journal, that's where deep, when you begin to understand, you'll, you'll start to notice, wow, I see what is happening in the magnet mind. So there will already be a shift because you won't be able to operate in like the matrix, let's say, right? You've kind of broken that apart. But the workbook, the Thrive Journal accompanies Locus. It takes all the principles of why this works and it applies it and you do it every night, five minutes before you go to bed. I'll tell you why you do it right before you go to bed because this is kind of cool. That's the timing part. Before we go to sleep, our conscious mind lets go. It has to or you wouldn't fall asleep. Well, anything that's in your brain, about 45 minutes before that happens, what do you think it happens? It goes right into your subconscious. It doesn't get distilled, distorted, generalized, knocked out. It drops right in. This is why if you scroll social media, you watch a TV show or movie, what happens? It shows up in your dreams, right? You're like, oh, I just saw that before I went to bed. So something is gonna go in. And many times you see folks, they watch the news or they'll read something and they get all hyped up before they go to bed. That's like the worst thing to do. So what you wanna do is put in your brain 
new goals, new knowns, so that that drops in your subconscious and it feels comfortable, and then you see change. The book goes into all this. I can't go into too much of that. Now, you asked about the community. Definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn, and I do have a website, locus, L-O-C-U-S, mindset.com, and you can join our community on there. You can join, um, I have an email that goes out once a week to the community with leadership tips and tools and a video. That way, people can stay in connection and community, because we've heard that a lot. Folks will say, well, I want to make sure I'm continuing to get this content. It's an ongoing thing. That's unbelievable. That's great. I mean, it's a, it's a, I, I see it all the time with myself um, at night, you know, yeah. or you wake up at 3, 4 a.m. Yeah. and you're like, people are like, I, I, you know, I just wake up and I can't fall back to sleep or you have a panic attack or anxiety attack or whatever. You're growing, you know, you're, these businesses because at night, that's when I'm reflecting on my day and I'm constantly thinking about, you know, growing the business or, or the market or 8% rates and then, you feel it at, th okay. three, at 3 a.m. You're going to love when I tell you this. There's a great, in fact, I can send you the interview, John Asaroff, who ran real estate companies. He also wrote the book, The Secret, on the law of attraction. And, and I think there's definitely elements of that that play out. I just think many times we do affirmations at the wrong time of day. We do them when the conscious brain is wide awake in the morning, and that's when you're most critical and you're most operating in your patterns, right? Because your brain is locked in. At night, that's when you can get change. So when he did this with his real estate team, they started to sell millions and millions of dollars. This is so applicable. So at night before you go to bed, you're thinking about your day, but you're kind of in like this, what could go wrong? What could happen? You go to sleep, and all of a sudden the brain... As weird as this sounds, you need to not live in reality before you go to sleep. You need to live in your goal state. And that's what Thrive does. So if you literally follow, you don't even have to believe it works because this is science, right? It just goes right in. So if you actually just follow the steps, you don't even have to believe it. Follow the steps. That's how stuff gets in. And it will work so because you're using like your John can do well. Oh yeah, he doesn't. In <laughs> fact, it's very simple to write out. Yeah, it's a very simple journal, and and I've given it to folks. We've shared it with work colleagues. I've shared. It, people have said, I can't believe the change, and it doesn't feel like change. That's how you know you're getting real change when it doesn't feel like you have to exert your will. Willpower is a finite resource. It's dependent on two things: glucose and sleep. So when we're hangry, hungry, and tired, it goes out the window. So we need to use the most powerful part of the brain, system one, as Daniel Kahneman talks about, when he talks about um, system one and system two, right? He talks about the dual brain. Thinking fast and slow is that book. We have to operate, we have to know what's going on in the magnet mind. And I don't think we have, you know, a hundred mal-beliefs or problems with ourselves, but we probably have four or five beliefs that are not useful to moving us ahead. And if we can get in and change those, you see better results. And it won't feel like change because you're dropping it in at a time of day, a time of night, when it's accepted as true. And then all of a sudden you get up and you're like, oh, that's weird. I just happen to have more time. I feel healthier. I'm drinking more water. I'm not going to go after that sweet, but I don't have to exert my will because the brain just says this is what's known. Well, I have to tell you that, um, you know, on this podcast, I usually learn something new, but I certainly did not expect that, <laughs> something that I could actually use and uh, um, use to improve, which I think is a, is a really cool thing. It's that in simple tool. Simple tool. Because, I mean, business people, they want to see results fast. Any one of those components of Thrive would work. We literally supercharge all six of them in so that you see change quickly. Because if you see change quickly, what happens? You're like, oh, that's good. I want to keep, keep doing, doing it. Right. right. Then what do we do? We say, well, it's working. I think I'll stop doing it. <laughs> and I always say, yeah. something's going to go in before bed. You want to control that. So even if you, it doesn't mean you can't check your email. I do that. But the last thing I do before I go to sleep is my Thrive Framework. That is what sets me up for success. And how many minutes would you say that is? is it, it takes me less than five now because you're literally, I mean, when you go through the journal, you're going to be writing th things in three categories, three times each. And then you bring up the imagination, the visualization, the emotion. And when you get really good at that, it's a five-minute process. Is there stuff you could be doing? I have, I have four little children under six uh, as of next week. Wow, so, um, Yes. So are there things you said you wish you could have uh, someone would have showed you this earlier in life. Are there, uh, you know, at night we all take showers and we all like kind of get together and we either like put on a little cartoon for 20, 30 minutes and kind of all lay around together and it, mm -hmm. and then we all go to bed. Now what that's done is it, we're, we're very, very close because of it. But I do sit there and I wonder like we, we, during the day they read books and they do all this stuff, but like that's our time to kind of just like hang out. But I do wonder, are there things you could be doing yeah. today with them that, they don't, you know, that just kind of yeah. keeps so, them going through life. I don't have children. I always say that because I want to make sure people know I'm not giving advice as a parent. My sister has two young boys. They're amazing. No one, no one. And I will say the best thing about children is their ability to imagine. 
Like, remember when you were young and you played pretend and, you know, you imagined that you were running in the forest with a sword or whatever you were playing pretend with, you know, and you really got into it. Like, the first couple minutes, you knew that it was just a, a game, but then after a while, you felt, okay, so imagining and saying, what do you dream about? What do you want to imagine? So I think activating the imagination in a positive, productive way. So, you know, um, if I were to say to my nephew, like, you know, imagine yourself in life, you're amazing, you're making all these contributions, you know, like, so just when you read the Locust book and the Thrive Journal, you'll be able to create that there or have them draw their ideal world or what makes you very happy. The more that they can imagine and visualize and build the knowns, the better, because from zero to seven, we're pretty much a sponge. We absorb almost everything. Right? Because our brains are operating in a lower brainwave state, ironically, the state that we pass through when we go to sleep. So if you ever see a baby, they're just kind of like this. They're in this little hypnagogic state absorbing it all. Mom is me. Dad is me. What that means, though, is if there's an argument or whatever, oh, it must be me. It must be me. Right? So the absorption is very high. After age seven, how do we learn? Repetition. Vocab words, math problems, right? So that's why kids learn a language very easily when they're young, and they can recite a whole movie. You ever have that where they're like, oh, yeah. they can do the whole script, and they've seen it like twice because it's absorbed. So that's proof why Thrive works, because you're absorbing it in. It's like a sponge. You're not fighting at the gate, so to speak. Okay, so doing things that activate imagination, making them think about what they really want in life. I mean, you know, obviously it might be too young to say, oh, think about running a great business, or, you know, but eventually as they get older. So then you get your mind used to imagining positive things. You know, imagine what it feels like to be so loved. Let's hug each other. Oh, isn't this great? You know, that kind of thing is amazing, because then that builds their knowns as that's healthy, that's positive. And it goes in right away because then they go to sleep. Yeah. And you'll notice the next day the mood is shifting and all that. Whereas, you know, if there's a contentious bedtime time frame, right, what usually happens the next day? Oh, they wake up, right? You know, so it's amazing. What happens right before you go to sleep is the most valuable time. And sports psychologists knew this. I mean, that's one of the ways the Russians swept the Olympics in the 80s besides the drugs. But, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> but they, they knew the power of the mind. All right. So... Uh, I believe everybody should have a mentor. Do you have a, do you have a mentor? Oh, absolutely. I have several. Um, and I have a coach, too. I think it's so important to have a coach. I'm part of Dan Sullivan's strategic coach. And I get to, and it was funny because I had all these belief systems around that. Like, oh, I don't know if I can take the time because it's, you know, four times a year. You have to either travel or now they have a more virtual session. And you do have to devote time to meeting with the coach and talking with them. And the reason is that you have blind spots that you don't see. And especially in leadership, as you get more and more leadership and responsibility, people don't tend to give you the feedback that you need as much and that you get as much so I've done three 360 evaluations they're all been voluntary and they've been done at different organizations and it's great because you can see kind of similar themes and trends so you can work on them so I think having a mentor and a coach is great and you want people that are where you are that have you know successful companies and businesses so I want to be coached by billionaires because there's a different mindset of billionaires and I know when I say that there's a lot of belief systems that come up people are like oh it's all about money no, money is impact. Money is an echo of value. It's about people that understand how to use money to have incredible generosity and contribution in the world. So I'm looking at those people who don't stay in the breakdown. I want the people to check me. So if I get up and I'm complaining about something, they're like, Susie, what are you doing? Oh, you're right. You know, I want that. So I'm always looking for mentors that have done where, what I want to do or have become the type of people I want to become. They're not perfect, but they're there and they're self-reflective. Yeah. Susie, did you have a turning point in your life at some point where this trajectory in your life, you know, went, went that way where it could have gone somewhere else? I mean, was there somebody that inspired you or at some point, I know you mentioned in college, you said, I don't, I don't want to be strapped for cash you know, and I can't go to the grocery store. Was that it or was there you know, something else that pushed it? That was probably, I would say to you that, uh, it's funny because there's these, I forget who came up, oh, Napoleon Hill in Think and Grow Rich talks about the six human fears and he talks about the six core fears that we have. And number one is poverty. You would think it would be fear of death. It's not, it's poverty. The same part of the brain that lights up when we're afraid, lights up when we have money concerns. And, you know, growing up, we, my family, my dad was an entrepreneur. He, he was in real estate. And so sometimes that can be, if you don't manage the money, that can create belief systems around money. And that's why what you all do is so important because you're training up your agents, you're training up your people to say, look, you know, you have to have 
a strong sense of who you are and you have to be in continuous education so you can get better. But I would tell you there was a point probably in 2009, 2010 where everything in life stopped working or it felt like it stopped working. Relationships, my work, my health. And when I kind of started to look at that, and I did, I had, I had a situation where I was like, wow, this could be a turning point. And I remember talking to one of my therapists, and I think therapy is a phenomenal thing. It's basically leadership coaching and a different method, but it has to actually be, you know, behavioral therapy that changes. And he said, you know, I think you're in charge of all of the things that are going on. I think you, you have an insecure nature and you're in charge of this whole thing. And that was hard to hear. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. And I remember I almost walked out of his office and then I said, well, if it's true, how do I change it? Because for me, I'm all about fixing things. I know by and large, they'll joke like, you know, women like to vent and men like to solve problems. I want to solve problems. If I bring a problem up, I want it fixed. I'm not looking for people to vent. I'm not looking for people to, it's like, fix it, right? So I was all about what is the solution? And that was what I found in that locus of control. It was realizing that I am more than my memories. I am more than my behaviors. We are all more than that. And we're more than the things that happen to us. We're not the way we are because of the things that happen to us. It's because of how we think about the things that happen to us. It's a choice. And when people see that, then they stop telling you a story of woe. But it's very difficult because many times if they, if they give up that story of woe, right, then they're not honoring the family, honoring the loss, honoring the pain. You can let that go. You see it a lot with athletes. Uh, we aren't, who, you know, we aren't who we are, who our past, our history. And I, I find it, uh, it very interesting because you'll, you'll meet like a, a guy who you remember growing up who was like this ridiculous athlete, right? And uh, like he was a superstar, right, in high school or college. And then they don't go pro or they do for a little bit or whatever. And then they just kind of dwindle in their, and I hate using the word um, average, but when you meet with them, you see them later in life, they're still just talking about the, the past and they really never amounted to anything after that. And I mean, that might be harsh the way I'm saying it because I'm sure they're happy, but you're like, man, if he took that aggressiveness and that competitiveness and applied it towards life and business and his job or whatever, how is this guy not worth millions of dollars? And it's not about money, but just attract that kind of success. You see it a ton. Um, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you have anything to think about? With well, the, look when, at when the people that. that, I mean, what would be the example of someone that did that, right? And, and you would say that they continuously invested in themselves. They were always learning. They were always growing. And many times what can happen is when we have a high achievement in life, we hit a crescendo. I see this with entrepreneurs, like they'll start a company, they'll make three, $400,000, and then it's like, whoa, right? It's out of their temperature zone. So one of two things can be going on. Sometimes you'll see folks that come from modest backgrounds and all of a sudden they're making millions and that's out of their temperature zone. That's out of what's known. So the brain has this weird way of pulling you back into safety because all it knows, it's, its whole design is to keep you safe, not to keep you healthy. It's like an iPod that you never refresh. It's gonna have old programs. And if all of a sudden making a lot of money could put you in a situation where now you got friends that you don't even know you can rely on, you might have to make better decisions. What am I gonna do with it? It's why a lot of winners many times end up back where they are, okay? It's not about money. Money amplifies who you are. It doesn't change you. If you're a bad person, a jerk before money, you're gonna be worse after. If you're a kind and generous person before money, you will be that after. So it could be a little bit of they're out of their comfort zone and the brain will find a way to pull it back. And when you don't have a challenge and something you're working for and a, and a pursuit that you're passionate about, we, we don't always show up in our best way. Like I've said this before, it's like, if you can have your job, which I feel I do at Walsh, where you are just, every day you wake up, you're on fire to start the day. You can't believe how lucky you are to come to work here and do this. Then you'll always be in that growth mode because you'll always be seeing the challenge and you'll come out of that, oh, I don't know if I should show up today. I gotta get up early, I gotta go at this meeting. But when I know other people are relying on me, that's a tremendous, just like you're with your kids, right? When you know they're relying on you to do something, you might show up differently than you did before. I can't tell you how many folks I know growing up, they would sleep in late, all of a sudden they get kids, they're like, oh, I'm up at six, I gotta do this again, right? Because you have a reason to do something beyond yourself. And there's something wired in the human spirit that when we're in service to others, we show up as our very best selves. The other thing could be just you tap out and people don't think they have to develop anymore. And I see that in the business world too. Some people feel like once they've hit a certain level of achievement, you know, many times we joke about with CEOs, like I'm the CEO, you should just listen to what I say. No, that is earned every single day. Every single day that is earned by how you show up and what you learn and how you change and how you grow. I mean, half of what I learned in law school is completely irrelevant. It's been overturned. 
If I were to just say, well, I went to law school, I have a law degree, I'm a licensed attorney, you should listen to me, I would never take that advice. We right? do that when we go to listing appointments and you're dealing with doctors and attorneys, they think they know the price of their home. And I always joke with them. I'll say, you know, how many have you sold the past year? And it's like zero, but you know, they have this higher standard for the, like, you, they tell you versus listening. And you so, know. you know, one thing I would say too, this is so funny you said that, I always think about the, the value of your home is what the market will pay. And that can change, right? It's not necessarily absolute. So it's what the market will pay. So I say to somebody, the good news is you don't have to worry about what you think or what we think. We're gonna give you what the market will bear. It's like the value of your stock. I can believe my stocks are worth 10 million, but if the value is not there, you know, so I think sometimes framing that helps because we will attract the type of clients into our business based on our language and how we you know, and so in an intake meeting, I've seen it be very successful where they'll say, okay, here's our culture, here's what we do, you know, as we know, do you agree with this? And then that way you don't have to get to that conversation right. because it's, it's like, otherwise you can't move anything because right. everybody's like, I'm not taking it down that price. And then six other things sell because they, right. they're not sitting on the market. So a lot of it is the belief systems we have. That's a great example of a belief system. Right. And I've had to work with people on that and say, well, actually that's a belief system. You can change that. And they're like, what does that mean? Right. You, you, you talk about waking up every day and loving what you do and, and you're on fire. It, it, that, I'm guessing that wasn't always the case, right? I mean, how important is it for people to understand that it, took, it takes a ton of work, a ton of time, a, a ton of things to happen to you to get to that place? Because I think a lot of people wake up, especially the next generation, I see it with, with young 20-year-olds and agents that wake up and they just want to be like, like, they expect to love what they do day one. I mean. Is that a, you, yeah. you know, so to touch on that a little bit. Well, a couple of things. One is, I don't know if it takes a lot of time and in an experience, but it takes the right calibration. You know, when you go to the eye doctor and they're like, number one or number two, number three or number four. Okay. So for years, I was looking at how is this job going to fulfill me by certain criteria instead of where do my talents and skills align with the needs of the world? And in that intersection is your purpose. So some of it is the very first quote that we started, the mirror, the window. Are you looking inward and seeing how that's going to feed you? Or are you looking outward and seeing what can I bring and contribute to the world? Okay, so that's number one. And so some of it was I was always fulfilled in what I did because I operated that way. Who wants to get up every day and be miserable? That's a choice, right? That's a decision. That's not, oh, I hate my job. I hate my boss. I hate... That's a decision. I mean, people are where they are. You have chosen the circumstances that align with who you are. So all of a sudden, it's seeing in your current job, what are you doing that is making a bigger contribution in the world? And when you're coaching new agents, help them see that what they're doing isn't just selling homes and creating you know, letters of intent and offers and all that. They're actually helping people build financial stability, security, and understand home ownership. And as we know, even in the recession, when you can stabilize home ownership, you stabilize society. So sometimes it's a shift like that, helping them see what they're doing is connected to something bigger. Because what do we just say? We feel better when we know we're doing, making a bigger contribution in the world. Some of it was I had to become the type of person, I had to clear out a lot of junk so I could have that clarity. So I love working with people and saying, what is your through line? Like, what is the thing, John, when you were young, you always did really well that people would come to you for? And also, if you did it too much, it would drive people nuts about you. Like, what was the thing you were known for? Drawing. Drawing? Yeah. Okay, great. So you would just always draw, right? And what did you love about drawing? Um, being able to create something out of nothing or create whatever was here and just go with it. And without it. tracing, without having uh, a, a playbook for it, just go. Okay, great. And do you see how maybe today the things that you're drawn into and that you're most passionate about come from that through line? So it's like helping, like even this, right? I mean, even your involvement in this amazing podcast that you're reaching out to people and sharing and probably other things that you do at the company. So if you think about like, wow, what is it that I, my through line is, people can then understand the contribution they can make. So I think a lot of it is that. And then the other thing is you just have to, you know, like you want something in life that aligns with your purpose. And I don't know if it takes a lot of years because I've seen people in their 20s have it. And I think your purpose will change based on the needs of the world and stay in continuous learning. Oh, great advice. You've touched on a lot of unbelievable things. Um, what about outside of work? Who, who are you? Who are you outside of all of this? Because this is absolutely amazing. I don't know how you have time for anything else because it sounds like you, it, it, 
you you've taught and learned and read a lot. So, um, but who are you outside yeah. of work? Well, you know, I always talk about work-life integration as part of work-life balance because if you were to talk to my team, and I've learned this in my 360s, they'll probably say she never takes time off. And I think to myself. That's so funny because I almost feel like sometimes I take too much free time. And here's what I mean. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is exercise. That's so important to me. It has become almost like, it's like my body just says, okay, we're doing this. I don't even have a choice on it, right? And then pretty much my day is scheduled out with who I'm communicating with, who I'm speaking with, who am I meeting with, you know, what are the goals that I have to accomplish? So when you say, who am I outside of work? I mean, I'm an aunt, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, you know, I have those relationships. But I'm also very cognizant of who I spend my time with, even in the family. Because we all know, we just came out of Thanksgiving, we're going into the holidays. You can be around family members and you go, gosh, they're always in the breakdown. They're all, you know, so I'm very intentional about that. But I'm also like, you know, my exercise is important to me and then my professional development. I'm actually currently in a SHRM class preparing to take the SHRM exam for HR. I thought this is a great thing to learn. I mean, our most valuable resource at any company is our human resource and our human resources. And I wanted to make sure that I was trained up and I was learning as much as I can. So I would say a lifelong learner and, you know, someone that just really wants to make contribution to the world. But I love what I do so much. It's really very integrated. So a lot of what I do outside of Walsh is for Walsh, is, you know, the locust leadership. I love working with leaders. I love working with entrepreneurs. And I love teaching the locust mindset tools. Love it. Well, let's wrap this up, John. I know you have a, an end of the podcast question. Well, um, we always uh, end the podcast with sort of a funny question. But, uh, I mean... Our lives are surrounded by food. Oh, you know? I know what you're going to ask me. <laughs> okay. You know, uh, food is like, you know, some people, you know, live yeah. to eat, we eat to live, or vice versa. <laughs> no, some so people whatever. eat to live, you live right, to eat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that, the little food. I went to the restroom. I was like, oh, my gosh, they have like a granola station. It's like oh, yeah. Whole Foods back I mean, there. Yeah. It's all about eating. So you're, you're on your death row yeah, meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is, what do you choose? Double chocolate cake, triple chocolate cake. So this is so funny. So you'll love this when you audible chief energy officer, but that is like my weakness, chocolate cake. And my team knows that like, and we're not talking one piece. I can finish half a Costco <laughs> sheet cake. You know, I'm not proud. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't know what it is about chocolate cake, right? I mean, it's just so good. The Costco chocolate cake is delicious. You probably know the science behind, you know, why it's. <laughs> well, chocolate actually, right? uh, oxytocin. I mean, chocolate actually produces that happy. I mean, I know some people are allergic to chocolate or they'll say, I don't like chocolate. I can't believe that. I never met a chocolate I didn't like, except I don't like white chocolate because I like dark chocolate. But um, chocolate does produce a chemical reaction in our bodies that's like oxytocin, dopamine. So it definitely is a happy thing. So who knows? Maybe growing up, I associated chocolate cake with birthdays and that was happy and I got presents and that's great. But I would say definitely chocolate, all chocolate, all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's, that's an easy one. That's like the easiest question ever. And my team would tell you that too, because they're, they're like, okay, there's a chocolate cake in the fridge. This is for such and such holiday. Don't let Susie get near it. I'm like, <laughs> I can relate. I can relate. It's it's same now thing. you guys are going to, like, this, this holiday, you're going to be like, oh, the chocolate cake. Yeah. Well, Susie, I, honestly, this has been an unbelievable podcast. You're super interesting. You're very, you know, you're, you're special. I mean, that's a, that's a word that uh, I don't use often because. I've never met you until today, and this was very easy. I was I was a little nervous today because the last couple podcasts I had relationships with these people. I've known them, and I just was worried about. I've never I've never really done this with anybody I've never met, and you made it very simple and easy. And your story is amazing. Too. Thank you, both so, of you. I felt like we're yeah. old friends Thank talking. Well, we are. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming. You're very um, and and uh, we're, we're super honored. And. Uh, for more episodes of Giant, follow Dobie at Real, uh, Dobie Real Estate on our social platforms at We Are Dobie. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.